Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Peter Burpee to the podcast. Peter's first experience with epilepsy occurred around the age of 10 when he was diagnosed with absence seizures. Following a period of seizure freedom, Peter's seizures returned in a sudden and rapid onset when he was in high school. He's here today to tell us about both experiences, how he's been able to achieve seizure control, and why he's running in the upcoming New York City Marathon to raise funds for cure epilepsy. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about how epilepsy first entered your life? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Like my journey with epilepsy first kind of began when I was in fourth grade, kind of started having absence seizures. Then my teachers noticed that I was zoning off a little bit in class and kind of brought it to the attention of my parents saying, you know, just want you guys to be aware of this. And my parents didn't really think a whole lot about it. I was doing well in the school, like very active in extracurriculars. And uh, my parents first noticed it when I was out during a football game uh, one day and the whole rest of the game was going on on one side of the field. And I was just off in the corner kind of dozing off. And I think this was the first time my parents were like, Hey, this is a little more serious. You know, we need to kind of get this checked out. And made an appointment with a child neurologist and he ran an EEG that found there was some abnormal brain activity and just kind of started that um, we found that I had absent seizures and the doctor wasn't too worried about it. He said that two thirds of kids grow out of these and put me on some medications that worked great and was seizure free and eventually kind of weaned off the medicine. And so what were you told at that time? So fourth grade, you're nine, 10 years old, you are able to know that something is not quite right. Do you remember how it was explained to you or what you were told about it? Were you nervous? I don't think it really registered for me. I think it, my parents like weren't super worried about it and were just happy that there was like a plan and at least somewhat of a solution that was working at the time. And they were just kind of glad that I was like healthy. And this was, if this was the worst of it, they were, weren't too worried about it and saw that, you know, it wasn't really affecting my day-to-day life too much and was able to, you know, continue on with school and sports and social life. And um, I don't think it really hit me just because I was so young. So how long were you having the absent seizures before they were controlled? I think it was probably a couple of months. Um, I think that the doctor did a great job of kind of getting a handle on things and um, started the medicine pretty pretty quick and the medicine was obviously working. And so that was obviously fourth grade. And I think that the absent seizures kind of like came and went as far as middle school and eventually weaned off the medicine kind of shortly before high school started. So then you had this period of seizure freedom, but it didn't last, unfortunately. Tell us about how and when those seizures returned. Yeah, so going into high school, seizure-free, like that was great. Didn't really think about epilepsy at all. It was just kind of in the past and 
you know, was all excited to start high school, you know, start driving, that sort of thing, all the excitement that comes with high school. And I was on a service trip my sophomore year summer down in the jungles of Panama. We were building a sports court for a remote village and was coming back. My brother was with me as well as, you know, probably 20 some classmates and a couple of teachers. And we'd stopped at a rest stop and I had it. That was my first time having a grand mal seizure. Uh, my parent or my teachers didn't know what it was. My brother didn't know what it, what it was. And he thought I was actually having an allergic reaction. And so he went and like, as a smart brother would do, he grabbed an EpiPen and, you know, stabbed it in my thigh and they took me to the hospital and no one was really sure what happened. And so they put me on some meds just to, you know, enough so I could get home on the plane. And the plan was just kind of like, you know, figure it out when I got home, but they just wanted to make sure that I could get home safely. I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been for you and for your family. Do you remember much from that time? And, and what were you told when you got back to, when you got back home? I know my parents were pretty scared just because, I mean, as a parent, you would probably understand. My dad was sitting at work and he got a phone call that came through from Panama and he, I think, kind of assumed that something bad had happened. And I think his biggest worry was just like, can we get him home? Like, when can we get him home? And fortunately, it was the end of the trip. So it was pretty quick uh, time period as far as when the seizure happened and getting me home. I don't remember anything from that day. I just kind of remember like limping my way through the airport because my leg was so sore. But when I got home, I think that there was like a little bit of a grace period as far as um, kind of when I got home and when we could see the doctor, like get in touch with the neurologist. And so that Saturday when I'd gotten home, I was headed to Vancouver, Washington for a lacrosse trip. Um, my brother was in the backseat with me and I had actually had another seizure on the way to the lacrosse trip. And my parents told me that my brother looked around and said, dad, it's happening again, like the same thing. And so my dad was like, this is obviously not an allergic reaction. So they pulled off on the highway and we were close to a hospital. So they brought me to the hospital and they put me on some medication there, some short-term medication. And they recommend we go see the neurologist, obviously. So we got in touch with the neurologist and that was kind of when we realized things were a little bit more serious. Now, had anyone sort of put the connection together yet that these were, that your epilepsy had returned in a different form? And, and how long did it take for that connection to be made? I think it was pretty quick because I assume doctors must have asked like, hey, does he have any history of epilepsy? And, you know, obviously absence seizures are quite a bit different than grand mal seizures. So that connection was definitely made pretty quickly. And when I was able to actually get in touch with the childhood neurologist that I'd seen for my absence seizures, he ran an EEG and just kind of started pumping me full of medicine. I think I was up to probably about 14 pills a day and the seizures still were not stopping. You know, I was having three to four or five of them a day, having them all over the place, whether it was in the classroom, in the lunchroom, on planes, at the airport, at home. It was just nonstop. And my parents were getting pretty frustrated because obviously, you know, the medicine and 14 pills a day weren't helping. And that was kind of when they realized, hey, this is, this needs to go a different direction. I think we need to visit like a new neurologist or just 
kind of change approaches here. Time to get a second opinion. And I do want to get to that because I, I am a huge proponent and advocate for getting additional opinions, second, third, fourth opinions. It is so valuable, but I, I want to pause for a minute because you're talking about having all of these seizures in the classroom on, on an airplane. You're a junior in high school. How was this impacting you academically, socially? Clearly you were involved in athletics and all these different activities. How did you cope with that? I think it was hard being that young and having to go through it. Um, I mean, especially in high school, you know, you want to be as involved as you can and like, you just want to be having fun with your friends and doing well in school and like just being there for all of it. Cause it's your formative years. And it was hard, like getting my driver's license taken away and not being able to play lacrosse for a season and having to miss quite a bit of school. And I think it just weighs on you in a number of ways. So it just academically it led to spending a lot of time before and after school getting caught up in like, Fortunately, I was able to have very supportive teachers and just the whole kind of administration was there for me and whatever I needed. And so they were willing to kind of put in that extra time because they saw how much I valued it. And so fortunately, my grades like didn't drop as much or I was able to kind of stay up to date with some accommodations. Um, sports, like wasn't able to play, which for obvious reasons, um, that was very frustrating because, you know, sports were a huge part of my life growing up. And all you want to do is be active and be out there with your friends and playing the sports that you love and just kind of have that taken away in the blink of an eye. It's like, I don't know, it just felt like life changing at that moment. And socially, I think I just kind of felt frustrated because I felt like I had to rely on my twin brother to drive me around since I couldn't drive or like have friends always pick me up or just kind of felt like I was always like somewhat of a liability to them. And they always just kind of had to constantly worry about like, Oh, is he going to have another seizure? Is it going to happen? And not even if it's just more of a matter of like, when is it going to happen again? So right. it was just a very frustrating time period. It's pretty heavy stuff for a 16 year old to be weighing on a daily basis. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Have you or a loved one been recently diagnosed with epilepsy? Are you looking for more information about epilepsy and available treatment options? Go to cureepilepsy.org forward slash four dash patients to get resources and information about epilepsy. Now back to seizing life. Obviously, this wasn't something that you could keep from your teachers or your friends uh, because of how visible your seizures were. You mentioned that your teachers were supportive. How did your friends react? You know, I think that they were, again, I was very lucky to have very supportive friends and just kind of a surrounding community around me. So I think that they were all just very supportive and wanted to do anything that they could to help. But I think a lot of them were just kind of confused and didn't exactly understand like the whole scope of the picture. And this was a lot of their first times experiencing epilepsy firsthand. And I think they were probably feeling a little bit of, you know, fright and just a little bit of confusion, but they just wanted to be around and want to be as supportive as possible. That's so important for other young people with epilepsy to hear because you didn't have a choice in keeping this from the people that you are around every day and you were still supported by 
your teachers, by your friends, by your community. And so I, I want to make sure that 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 message gets heard. I want to jump now to your parents coming to the conclusion that it was time for a second opinion. Talk to us about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as the grand models kind of progressed um, and we continued to meet with the original childhood neurologist, it was just kind of like a natural progression where he was like, I think it's worth seeking like a second opinion. And, uh, you know, that combined with my parents' frustrations, it was pretty natural. Um, but during one of the periods where I was having quite a few seizures, we called like the paramedics. And I think this was after the third or fourth one of the day. And they said, you know, I think it's time for you to like, check him into a hospital. And so went up to the hospital, they checked me in overnight, hooked me up to an EEG machine and I actually had a grand mall while I was hooked up. So they kind of like obviously um, analyze and investigate kind of their findings and when I got connected to the new neurologist, he went back and looked at that and also had me come in and do an MRI in the middle of the night. And so combine those two findings, he was able to localize the, um, I guess, kind of area of my brain, figure out kind of the trigger point of where those seizures came from. And, um, you know, he was able to just figure out down to a T what was causing them. And from there, just put me on like the exact kind of, concoction of medicine that has been what I've been taking for the last seven, eight years and have been seizure free since. So I've been very fortunate to kind of have that quick, quick finding and quick transition to a new neurologist. It sounds like this second neurologist that you saw was definitely an epileptologist and that they were able to read all of these scans. But I wonder if that first neurologist that you were seeing, were they also an epileptologist? I don't remember off the top of my head from what my parents say though, I think, I don't think he specialized in grand malls. So it kind of makes sense, I guess, why I was driven down a different path, but. Yeah, it's such a, it's such an important distinction that I don't think a lot of people are aware of that, you know, not every neurologist is an epileptologist, but every epileptologist is a neurologist. And when you are facing these pervasive seizures, it really is important to see those specialists. And uh, it doesn't mean that you are um, abandoning your original neurologist, or it just means that you need more specialized care and you need someone who has been trained in epilepsy specifically. So I'm just so grateful that you were able to get that care and to see an epileptologist that could treat you and knew exactly what medications were going to help you. So how old were you when you got control of those tonic-clonic seizures? I think I was about 17 or 18, so probably spring of junior year of high school. Okay. So you got to go into your senior year with the seizures under control. That must have been such a relief. And as you're starting to look at colleges, what was that process like? Because I'm sure, you know, you you had gotten control of these seizures, but you and your family are very well aware that they can return. How did you navigate that transition to college? Definitely stressful. Um, but I think a lot of it came down to kind of having mature discussions together as well as with the neurologist and just kind of seeing what everyone was comfortable with. And, you know, he was confident in what was going on in our plan. And 
Um, fortunately, that didn't come with too much restrictions, and I ended up going to college about the furthest place away from home. So um, he was comfortable with me going to college 3,000 miles away from home, and I think that if he was comfortable with it, my parents were confident in it as well. And I think that it was just important to have those mature discussions, and um, it was just, you know, looking back on the whole thing, I was, I'm just so fortunate to have been in that place and be able to have kind of that help at such an early stage and such a formative stage. So you, you go to college, you're on these medications, you've had this, you know, terrible school year of seizures. Did you notice that it, that whether the, the history of the seizures or the medications that any of it affected your schoolwork in college? Did you tell, I mean, you weren't having seizures. So now it was your choice to tell your teachers, to tell your roommates, to tell your friends. And so I guess, you know, two parts here, A, did you tell them? And B, you know, did you see any lasting effects academically? Yeah. I mean, to answer part A, it was very transparent with my roommate from day one. Um, it's not something I want to hide just because I think it's important for him to know what would be going on potentially, you know, worst case scenario. And, um, you know, it's part of me. It's who I am. Like, it's something that I, you know, want, want those around me to like know and understand what goes on when it happens. And there's, it's not beneficial to anyone to hide it. Um, and then as far as professors go, they knew as well. Um, I wanted to like just be open and upfront with them as far as like what happens and um, was fortunate to have some like test accommodations in college as well, which was very helpful. And my professors only wanted the best for me, which was great too. So they were very supportive. And I think being at a smaller school like Lehigh with, you know, 20, 15 to 20 kids per class, it was just very great to be in those kind of smaller classes and like develop those personal relationships. And that's why I felt like it was important for me to be transparent with my professors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and did you notice any sort of, you talked that you had accommodations um, and if you're open to sharing, I wonder what those accommodations were. And, um, and also I just, I think it's important for people to understand that even if you're not actively having seizures, how epilepsy can still affect you academically and why you needed those accommodations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just kind of after going through all those seizures and it definitely takes a toll on your body, takes a toll on your head and just kind of felt like it took a little bit longer for my, my brain to process some things and um, just had like time and a half on exams and found that to be like super helpful and, um, as far as just like academics in general, um, I think that having it in high school and like going through all the seizures in high school, it kind of taught me from that younger age that it's just going to take a little bit more work for me than others potentially for me to get where I want to be. And so I wasn't afraid to like go in early or stay late or spend extra time with the professors on things that, you know, may take others less time to understand may take me a little bit longer and just to kind of learn not to get frustrated with that because, you know, all of it is out of my control. I can't control when I'm going to have a seizure. So 
just try not to put too much blame or guilt on it and just kind of understand that this is life and this is how it may be. And, you know, it just may take a little bit more time. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you graduated from college and now you are living and working in New York City. How are you managing your epilepsy now? I know that you're not actively having seizures, but um, a lot goes into, it's more than just taking some pills every day to make sure that they don't return you, you know, you have to take care of yourself. So Peter, how have you managed your epilepsy now as you are working and living independently? Yeah, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to balance for me. Uh, one of the things that I've always prioritized is sleep. And so trying to get, you know, at least six hours, which obviously isn't, you know, necessarily doable every night, but trying to do that and kind of combine that with eating healthier, having like a healthy diet, and then combining that with getting just exercise in general, which has been great, just learning to appreciate running, which I know we'll get to later. Um, so just kind of combining like a healthy diet with exercise and sleep, it's just all kind of a balance scale for me. And um, it's kind of allowed me to figure out what's important in my life and what I want to prioritize. And I think just kind of, you know, keeping that all in mind, just kind of day in and day out, because like you said, it is more than just taking, you know, a couple of pills a day. I have to say, I'm just, I'm so impressed with your confidence and your awareness around your diagnosis and, and your openness to talking about it. It just, just so valuable and so important. I wonder, is it something that you still talk about now with friends? Is it something that you disclose to your employers? How have you managed those conversations? I think at friends, um, at that level, it definitely came up like when I started college and you kind of develop friendships and I was very fortunate to kind of, you know, find a close group of friends like very early on freshman year. And so that discussion obviously kind of happens naturally. And just like, like I said, with my roommate, I wanted to be very transparent and open with them about it. Um, and they were all very like understanding and a lot of them hadn't had like firsthand um, experience with epilepsy. So you kind of had to educate them a little bit, but they were all like very supportive and wanted to be as helpful as possible, whether that was, you know, getting my parents' phone numbers or getting a doctor's phone number, just kind of understanding what to do in a worst case scenario situation. Um, but as far as kind of, you know, letting uh, fellow employees know, I think that's just kind of come up naturally. It was never something that I wanted to hide nor immediately like lead with when I guess interviewing for jobs or just like working my current job. And um, it just kind of came up naturally in a couple of different settings. And again, haven't tried to force it either way. I haven't tried to hide it. And, you know, people, people understand at this point in their lives that like people deal with different things, whether it's different health scenarios or different just baggage in general. And, I think that that's been great because people at work have been very understanding. And, you know, I think when you share something kind of traumatic that you've gone through, it makes them want to like kind of connect on a deeper level. And so they'll kind of, you know, sometimes share something that they've gone to, whether it's related or not. And like I said, it's just kind of come up naturally. I love that. One of the biggest challenges that I know epilepsy patients have as they transition to adulthood is a lot of times they have to find a new 
epileptologist, whether that's because they've moved 3,000 miles away from home or, you know, just transitioning from a pediatric to an adult provider. How was that transition for you? Um, I think I was, again, very fortunate to have it be a pretty natural kind of transition. Um, one thing that we found was the whole epilepsy network as well as just child neurologists in general is a very tight knit group. A lot of doctors, if they don't know them on a personal level, they've heard of them or they've done different studies with them or know them through, you know, some other connection. And so I was able to get connected with a great group of doctors back here in the NYU Langone network and uh, just was a pretty natural connection from my childhood neurologist to a couple of names back in the NYU Langone network and have been able to kind of develop pretty quick relationships with them back here and have been able to get along well and kind of be on the same page as far as getting a plan going, you know, in my mid twenties here. And I've been very fortunate to just kind of luck out with that because it's not the case for a lot of people. So I've been very, very lucky. I, you mentioned the tight knit um, community of epileptologists and you are so right. And I think it's it's somewhat bittersweet. It works to our advantage, certainly when we're trying to connect with new doctors. And then on the flip side of that, I think it's often because we don't have enough epileptologists out there. Um, we need so, so many more. Super exciting. When I'm just so excited to talk to you about this because I am just in awe. You are going to be running in the New York City Marathon on November 5th for Cure Epilepsy. Talk to us about how you came to decide to run in the marathon, because I, I still cannot even wrap my head around 26.2 miles, and why you chose to run for Cure Epilepsy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, believe it or not, I have never been a huge fan of running. Um, <laughs> I was never very good at it. I did cross country my freshman year of high school, and part of that was you know, my parents kind of forced me to do it to meet some people, but um, was awful at it. Didn't like it, have never loved running long distances, but for some odd reason, I've always just kind of had running a marathon on my bucket list. Um, and so my first year after moving to New York, I went and saw the New York Marathon on the day it was happening and was just in awe of the people running it, was in awe of how much New York City came out and supported those group of runners. And it's just kind of a pretty amazing day to experience in general in New York. And I just remember thinking, I was like, I want to do that. Like as much as I hate running, like this is something I want to do. And, um, so obviously the New York Marathon has like a pretty competitive lottery to get into. And so then I found out that, you know, you could run for different charities and different charity sponsor groups of runners. And I was like, gosh, like, that seems like a cool way. Like what groups, you know, what do I care about? What am I passionate about? And it's like, well, I had a pretty cool or a pretty amazing journey with epilepsy. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to be here and like where I am now. And it's like, I wonder if there's any epilepsy foundations. And so I kind of did some Googling around, did some research and I saw that Cure had sent a group um, the previous year. And so I started Googling around a little bit more and, you know, I love what CURE stands for. I love that um, it aligns with kind of what my values align with. And it's just something that I can like relate to and something that I'm passionate about. And, 
you know, no matter how grueling those 26.2 miles are, like it's nothing compared to what kids and families have to go through as far as having seizures and grand malls and, you know, the number of other horrifying things that happen with, with epilepsy. But I'm just so, so excited to be able to run for cure and be able to raise money for research and just different awareness for it. And, you know, it's, it's getting closer to race day. So I'm getting very excited. Well, we are so honored to have you run for Cure Epilepsy. I will be there in New York City cheering you on uh, with the Cure Epilepsy team. And uh, it's, uh, it is, it's just such an incredible day in New York. And I'm beyond impressed that you will be out there participating and running. Uh, it's incredible. Peter, Thank you so much for talking with us today, for sharing your story, and for running 26.2 miles for Cure Epilepsy on November 5th. Cannot wait to cheer you on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Peter, for sharing your epilepsy journey with us. And best of luck in the New York City Marathon on November 5th. As Peter noted, he's been fortunate to achieve seizure control twice. But one-third of people living with epilepsy are not able to control their seizures with current medications. And many of those who do achieve control experience challenging side effects from the medications. That's why Cure Epilepsy is dedicated to patient-focused epilepsy research. For 25 years, we've funded research aimed at better therapies and ultimately cures for epilepsy. If you would like to help us achieve our goal of a world without epilepsy, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Cure Epilepsy, inspiring hope and delivering impact. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.